Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 19, Eyeballs to Entrails. This week we're discussing season 2, episode 6 of Buffy, Halloween, and season 2, episode 4 of Doctor Who, The Girl in the Fireplace. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. So, Buffy this time, Halloween. Yes. Uh, I kind of wish it was Halloween outside for watching this episode. It's kind of hot and muggy right now. Yeah. Um, it would be nice if there was a crisp fall breeze or something. I know, but, I know. Um, I know, and I was trying to think of when this is going to actually post, and it won't quite be Halloween yet, even when this no, falls. No, but so. it'll be getting there. It, it'll it be close. It might be it'll... like early October or something. Yeah, yeah. Anyway... Um, but, um, so, yes. Uh, well, so what I want to start out with is um, less the monster of the week. And before we get into that, we're talking about kind of the overall theme of the episode, mm-hmm. um, which is really to do with um, taking the jumping off point of the Halloween costume and dressing up as a character. Um, you know, the story is really all about acting and role-playing um and as Buffy says to Willow to convince her to wear the sexy outfit that Halloween is really your excuse to dress up as what you want without any repercussions right so if you want to be like the slutty nurse no one's actually gonna think that that's you on Halloween it's sort of your carte blanche to let your inhibitions go and be whatever you want and whether that's a kid, you know, being kind of silly and crazy or whether it's an adult being more adult about it, it it's kind of that whole idea of both as, it, it, it's kind of mixed because on the one hand it's sort of dressing up as who you want to be and sort of inhabiting, letting yourself embrace maybe a side of you that you repress, mm-hmm. but then it's also acting in the sense of putting on a character that isn't yourself. Exactly. So it's yeah. like inhabiting a role um like an actor does and it's and it's a little bit of both or maybe it's it's one or the other depending on the person um and whether and what kind of person they are what their desires are um well and and there's also an aspect to it i think of like are you ever not acting like is is your is your own personality really who you are can you can you ever be um, fully yourself at any given moment in time, you know, regardless of whether it's Halloween or some other day of the year. Um, and so this is, in a way, a, a, a day where you're more honest because you're being more yeah. determined about who you are. And yeah, no, so it is both. There's an aspect of dressing up to play a character, but then there's also that there's something in you that is revealed by what costume you choose. And sure. What is the inner piece of you that you decide to display? Um, and you have no uh, problem displaying that side because you know it's just for fun. Nobody really is going to, you know, assume that that's, like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, even Willow's kind of uncomfortable with what she wears, but it's like no one's really going to think that Willow is, like, you know, 
a slutty girl because she dresses up as a Buffy's whole thing is yeah. you have an excuse to do this and, and nobody of, can judge you for it. And of course, Willow being slutty is pretty tame. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. She's like hiding herself the whole time. Yeah. So, and I think like, um, again, with the riddles, Drusilla's line, you know, we were t- kind of talking about whether or not we have anything to say about Drusilla, maybe not so much about her character, but I think, again, with the riddles of what she says is significant that, here, I want to get my quote right, but she says, do you love my insides, the parts that you can't see? Mm. Um, some and, uh, and everything, I think she says something like everything inside um, is, oh, what is it? Hold on, I have it right here. Where did she go? Everything's switching outside to inside. So uh, it's all this stuff about your insides and your outsides switching and suddenly your insides are your outsides right. and, every, and they're there for everyone to see. And, um, and of course, right. You're thinking physically, but this is also a personality thing, a mental yeah, thing absolutely. that's happening with, with everyone else. That's obviously the big metaphor of the week is, is, is that that happens not just, um, sort of personality wise, but also sort of goes along with, with the costume and what you choose to wear as, as yeah. you were saying. Yeah. And, and in particular, we get Buffy and Willow and Xander dressing up as what they wish they could be in a way, like the, the part of themselves that they're trying yeah. to, even if it's, even if Buffy ends up, discarding that at the end or even if willow is reluctant about it it's still there's a side of them that is you know the halloween costume is a way of putting their insides on their outsides a little bit yeah well and yeah of course i mean you could you could break it down one by one i mean buffy is pretty pretty clearly obvious she's dressing up the way she is because she thinks that's the sort of woman that angel liked and she wants sort of her stated reason is to give him a taste of what he used to have and can't have anymore or doesn't have anymore. But also, yeah, it seems like there's, there is a, there's a desire there for her to kind of be that woman, even though she may not totally, I mean, like Willow puts it succinctly enough, I think I'd still rather vote, you know, like, (laughs) but, but there is that sort of desire. Not a perfectly even trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like there is that sort of desire, it seems on Buffy's part to go back to something. And of course, what she's thinking of is completely idealized as Angel explains to her at the end. I didn't even like those women, you know, like they were dull and boring. And of course, they're not even... And and I would say those types of people, not limited to women, but, you know, there are mm-hmm. people like that who sort of have this, you know, strange fascination with propriety or, or whatever. Like, it, you know, just because the, the, you know, we don't necessarily have plantations or courts or, you know, that sort of thing. Like, there's still that type of thing that goes on. You think of, like, galas or, you know, different sort of highfalutin parties you know you might oh, think I, of I, um, I don't I don't want to judge anybody but I was just in New York City this weekend and up on the west side of Central Park the apartments run for $60,000 a month up there apparently. right so right right that kind of you know um high society is definitely yeah. still and and one that again not 
not to judge any particular people, but like a culture that values status. Um, right, right. Yeah. And that's not to say, I mean, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a libertarian. I have no problem with people making money and having fine things like that's that's not the issue. It's it's the sort of it's it's the attitude that goes along with it that we see in what's demonstrated um, by Buffy's alter ego when it when when she changes, you know, into the form of, of the costume there. Um, you know, that it, it's that is that sort of vapid, you know. Um, idea of not really being interested in anything intellectual or or um, interesting, <laughs> you know, like like Angel says again, you know, it's, they're just incredibly dull. They're not. There's there's nothing complex about those type of people. Um, yeah, yeah, and just completely defined by your your suitability as a mate and a partner and yeah. a wife, you know, that your, your job is to look a certain way to get married yeah. and that's it. And you're defined by your ability to do that. And, and I, I don't want to jump ahead too much cause I know you wanted to talk about Buffy a little more perhaps, but, um, I would just say, you know, the same thing holds true with Willow's costume and with Xander's costume. Willow, mm -hmm. I mean, clearly wants to be able to show herself as a sort of sexual person, which is not something you would, think of with Willow in her normal outfits of, you know, the cardigans and the, you know, um, sort of plain clothing that she wears uh, on a normal day-to-day -day basis. And so, mm -hmm. but then again, she ends up covering herself. And yep. of course, then it's the very covering her herself and making herself into a ghost, which when she turns into what her costume suggests, allows her to break out of that, you know, ghostly wrapping and, and really show herself off. Um, yep. And then with Xander, of course, we, we get the whole tough guy thing, yep. right? Like, yep. it, it for him, of course, I'm sure it's way less thought. I mean, Buffy's sort of... Right, he just bought a $2 gun. That's as much thought as went into yeah, it. Yeah, Buffy, Buffy's very intentional about her costume, right? Willow is intentional but reluctant. Yeah. Xander is, you know, once again, the body and just yep. sort of... Yeah, what's the cheapest thing that I can do? And yep. I found this gun. I'll get some old fatigues. I'm the king of the $2 costume. And yep. but Yeah, except there is that element to it. And we can save this for later. There no. is an element that, that, I mean, this episode does clearly set up, like, his whole desire to be masculine and a tough guy and take care of himself and defend Buffy. And, you know, so that's part of him, too. Yeah, no, and that's exactly where I was going with that, is to say while I think it was unconscious, I'm not sure I would say it was unintentional, <laughs> you know, sure, his yeah. costume, like yeah. it, you know, there's very much the it's more aspect. Sub, it's more subconscious. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much a, um, he's looking to be a tough guy and, and that's the aspect of him that comes out. And, and, you know, when we get to Giles, we'll have to talk more about that sort of thing because there's, there's a lot there, even though he doesn't dress mm -hmm. up in a costume. Uh, yeah. per se, or does he? Well, mm, that's the question. The tweed jacket so, is implied yeah. perhaps to be his costume. Yeah. yeah anyway, so back to Buffy. I'm sorry. I feel like I kind of went off on a whole tangent there, but um, no. What, I mean, what else did you want to say? There's not. I mean, I think Buffy's whole thing, um, even though it's maybe the most intentional of the three costumes, it's not as interesting as Willow's necessarily. Like it her character that she becomes is so clearly like a one-dimensional, 
you know, and, and, and that makes sense. I mean, it's not like she became a different person. She's just, you know, brainwashed into inhabiting this costume, which has no other thought than that it wants to be pretty and meek and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it's completely helpless and without any will of its own. So it doesn't need to be a really complex character because it's not a real character. It's just a costume. Yeah. But, well, um, and, and what I'm curious, what I was sort of curious about, and, and I'd love to hear your take on this is how much of the person that she changes into is the costume versus what she thinks someone who dresses like that would act like. That's what I got out of it was more that, yeah, it was more that, yeah, like I'm trying to think of how to put it, that it has something to do with the role that she, and and I don't think she was trying to be that kind of vapid, shallow girl for Xander, but it's more like if I imagine the mechanics of the magic I imagine that whatever this spell is mm-hmm. has more to more than just the physicalities of the costume. It maybe has something to do with with the intention of the wearer. You mm-hmm. know, like what it's it's somehow tapping into their brain and whatever part they think they're playing and incorporating that into. Now that's completely my own imagination. You know, that's not in no nobody says that right but that's what i kind of got out of it was like that this is a shallow character because it, it, buffy hasn't put a lot of thought into it as it's not like a real three-dimensional role it's just right someone whose purpose is to be the kind of normal girl who thinks about dating and that's all she thinks about. And there's no other thought in her head. Yeah, know? yeah. And letting the and, men folk do things, right? And letting the, yeah, ex- and letting well, everyone do everything for her, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, she's very much the sort of the quintessential debutante and, and the way that we've come to think about that. But um, we get a very different picture of someone of that era in Doctor Who later. So, like, like yeah. I think there's, you know, there's the connection there of, you know, I, I think we're totally meant to think of, you know, it's not like the costume has a personality which forces itself onto Buffy. It's, no, no, it's, yeah, it's very yeah. much that Buffy has an idea of how someone like who would dress like this, how they would act, and how that costume. Yeah, it's more you know, like a, it's more like a stereotype come to life. Yeah, you know? exactly. and 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 it's it's a stereotype with Buffy's sort of personal stamp of approval on the stereotype, yeah. right? You know, well, it's, well, it's Buffy's stereotype. Um, yeah. And, and well, but I mean, I would say there's also, there's a cultural element to it, but yeah, it's very much her kind of spin on it or her, you know, yeah. And, and I would, I would say that's also true of Xander, you know, like he's probably thinking like, you see him with the kids, right? You know, very sort of official and, and he's yeah. playing with them, of course. Like, you know, he's, you, you know, the, okay, let's go. If, if this situation occurs, what are we going to do? You know, like, yeah. you know, drawing yeah. them in and that sort of thing. You, you, but, you only, you only say you forgot me if it's for chocolate. Cause right. it's too risky otherwise. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. You know, teaching him the battle tactics, triage yeah. tactics. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like at the same time, like you get this sort of sense that, 
he's he's in a way quite a bit more serious about his costume too like he yeah and of course i mean he might have a better idea of how a modern soldier would act than buffy would have of how a 18th century um you know privileged woman would act but uh at the same time like you sort of get like he he does have sort of a more serious view of that and and a better sort of understanding of what it means to be a soldier and and that comes through sort of his uh, uh portrayal of that yeah um anyway. so so that begs an interesting question then okay so and maybe we need to just skip to willow because i don't know how to answer how to ask this without going to talking about willow yeah she i mean we wanted to talk about her leadership and sort of taking control and some of that is circumstantial like nobody else remembers who they are so she needs to step up but it's definitely different than anything we've seen her do before so how much of that is like the others from her idea of the role that she's playing is there something about not so much maybe the ghost aspect of the costume but there's the sort of you know I don't even know what to call her. It's not a costume. It's just it's just a really revealing outfit. Is she yeah. like a hooker? Like, what is this? Well, I got more of like a I Dream of Genie sort of vibe from it. Like, uh, okay. Like, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you're right. It's not a clear like, and and Giles sort of explicitly states that when she's explaining what are you dressed up as yeah yeah when she's explaining like and and you were a ghost <laughs> like yeah a ghost of what exactly a, like a slutty ghost <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um um so. How much of her kind of, quote, you know, strength or leadership skills might be drawn from being in that costume? Maybe maybe there's an aspect of being, of you know. Now, I mean, Buffy doesn't go to school just like that, but that's closer to Buffy than it is to Willow. The, you know, that kind of the mini skirts and, you know, revealing more skin and everything and having that kind of confidence so might there be an aspect of her being in that kind of clothing that she's that the kind of strong leader character yeah someone who has an opinion and who gives orders and takes care of people and you know there might be an aspect of the role playing in that too no that that's all very interesting and very very provoking questions i Sort of my theory on the fly, as you were asking and, and framing the question up, would be this: one. Um, so the, the obviously she has the. We keep calling it the slutty costume, but I I have trouble with that because it's not really that slutty. Like, no, it's not. She, she shows no. a little bit of midriff, and that's it. Like yeah, but, it's really not. But, I, but, but I don't yeah, know what to like, call it <laughs> com- compared to the the very you know chaste uh, outfits that she normally wears. Then then I. Yes, yes. It's it's like when uh, uh, you know, another Doctor Who analogy when Rose kept being called naked by you know yeah, Queen Victoria yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and crew. Um, but I guess I would say this. Obviously, you know, Willow has sort of the the desire to sort of let herself go and and be um not quite so reserved. Like that's that seems to be what the costume is suggesting. Um, yeah. But she can't quite yet pull herself out to do it. When she changes, when the the you know wind blows through and everyone becomes their costumes, um, or the thing portrayed by their costume anyway, the 
she sort of dies, right, and gets yeah. resurrected. And I think I think that's symbolic in a couple of ways. One, she sheds the literal, you know, ghost sheet that she has and, and her body with it, right? She sort of steps out and becomes a ghost. And so you get sort of that she's forced to shed her covering, like, in that way, yeah. right? So she she can't do anything about the fact that she's in this sexy outfit that she yeah. wanted to wear, but couldn't quite bring herself to, to go through with it. Um, also, situationally, which you kind of pointed out, she's she's sort of forced to take on the role just because nobody else can remember what's going on. Like she is a ghost of herself. Like Mm -hmm. she's transformed, but she's not transformed so much that she doesn't remember what happened and and everything. So there's that aspect to it as well. Um, And, and I would also say, and sort of the melding of the two of those things is that she's forced to stop worrying about what her image is, right? Like, yeah, she, she comes to the point where one, like, you you, you kind of have, or I shouldn't say you, but like people in general kind of have those moments where like, oh man, if only I knew there weren't going to be any repercussions to what I did said or you know whatever, like, you know, uh, sort of like what would it be like to be a fly on the wall at your own wake, right? You know, yeah, and and sure. and hear what people say about you. But on the other hand, like to be able to say things back, knowing that they can't do anything about it or change, you know, the way that you feel or think or, or have any repercussions on you. Both sort of the situation of her being a ghost at that point, and also the situation of her being the only one to remember things takes her mind off. Like what are other people thinking about me? What are other people going to think if I wore this? Well, you, you can't change what you're wearing. You can't even pick up something to put it on over top of what you're wearing. Like you have no control over it. And you also, you know, what you can control is what you remember. That's literally the only thing that you have at this point. And that's the thing that nobody else around you has. And so, you know, again, it kind of takes her mind off of worrying about what everyone else is thinking about her because no one remembers what she was like before. And no one, like, she can't even change what she is now, even if she wanted to. So, yeah. so I think those are sort of the two things that come together. And and, and that's what I had first. It was only when you were talking about Buffy and Xander, um, their own imagination feeding into the roles that I started to think about, you know, Willow's confidence feeding into that. Because my first reading before we started talking was, what I have in my notes is that she forgets herself. Mm -hmm. That she's in crisis mode, nobody else knows what's going on. Like you said, they don't even know who she is, so who cares? And really it's just get... It's not even until she gets back to Giles that she shows any hint of the embarrassment again. Like, he kind of has to remind her of what she looks like. That she's in sort of, you know... Not Willow clothing, yeah. Yeah, that she's in sort of her attack mode. And, like, the, the crisis and what she's doing and being the leader takes her out of her own self-consciousness. And Mm -hmm. to the point that she seems to kind of forget that she's wearing yeah. something that she wouldn't normally feel comfortable in. So by the end, when she goes to pick up the sheet and throws it away, mm-hmm. it's like, who the heck cares? Like, you right. know, you've been through all this. Yeah. Darn yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just walking home oh, yeah. and I look like what I look like. Like she's reached a new level of 
being comfortable, yeah. you know, well, in her own I, skin. And I think this is, uh, literally, yeah, yeah, the, the, I think this is one of those episodes that does a really good job of looking at all the characters, but I think, I think Willow is definitely a more central character than any of the others, if that makes sense. Yeah, like, I, I agree, yeah. Um, no, this is her episode. And, yeah. and, and, and I think, largely for just sort of what you described. And I would say this, I would say the costume has the, the co- her first more sexual costume has more of a um, feel similar to what Buffy and Sanders costumes are in that. I think it's a desire for her to be more yeah. open and not just, not just again, and necessarily what she wears, but to also to have sort of those leadership roles if you want to kind of call it that mm-hmm. or to have you know to have more active and less passive um and to be, choices to be more and, confident and, yeah. and her in her life and to be more confident and and all of those things above and i think it's that it's that last minute putting on of the of the ghost costume that is the sort of the aberration there and and that's that's her running back to what's safe for her but yeah. the intention is to 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 you know, and again, as as you know, those those kind of quotes that you were given before about what Buffy says about what Halloween is and the the importance of it being, you know, um, it's it's a night when you can be what you're not, even though you're not really what you're not. And I, I yeah. forget, you know, that yeah. whole quote where 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 you know she's yeah. talking about, um, you know, you talking are, about that. but you're not, but it's you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and and so, um. You yeah, know, well, I, I, the, I do think Willow's the, initial costume is has that same sort of intentional and thoughtful thing, you know, that like we're talking about with Buffy and Xander. Less intentional with Xander, but certainly subconscious and with him. But for Willow, I think it's conscious, but she she doesn't have the confidence. It's like the very thing yeah. she wants and wishes she could portray, she doesn't have in order to display what she wants. Sure, exactly. <laughs> and then, of course, like the whole the ghost goes on over top of that. So you've right, got this right, just right, right, right. formless white sheet and hiding underneath this kind of stunning person who's mm-hmm. not comfortable, you know, showing yeah. herself. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, Very... so, so that's, that, that was sort of why I said all three of them, I think have that aspect to it. Definitely. Um, yeah. We don't, I mean, Cordelia as a cat, I don't know that we can read anything more well, into that, you know. And and I was kind of, you know, thinking that too, that um, her, there is nothing deeper to her Catwoman. It's just, it's a silly Halloween costume. It's what you wear at Halloween. She probably wears the same thing every year. And to go along with that, of course, it's bought at Party Town. And that's why she's not changed magically with the others. Right. So it's kind of like, it's almost like it's like if they went into that Ethan's costume shop, there's something in the air that made them choose, like, they all happen to choose these really significant costumes. And then you've got Cordelia with the sort of throwaway, <laughs> bought it out of a bag, same thing every year kind of costume. So, you know, just nice little layers and stuff. Yeah, no one... well, and, and I don't think, I think the other thing is, like, yeah, like... I, I don't know if if we're meant to think that there's anything sort of magical about them picking the costumes versus, you know, rather than it's sort of just what they were looking for, either consciously or subconsciously. Um, But I think you're right about Cordelia, that it's not that 
she's not thinking about the costume or what the co- costume represents. She's thinking does, about how it looks on her. Right. And does that say something too about Cordelia that again, with the honesty that she's not interested in playing a role. She knows who she is. It could be, you know, I, I hadn't she, thought I don't, that. I don't need a significant symbolic costume if I know who I am and I show it. Yeah. You know, you know it, it very well could be. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, sort of the, the, like you said, the plot is set up that she just gets it somewhere else. And and the idea be like it's almost portrayed as though like Ethan's is sort of like a discount store, you know, right. like it's not like, oh, I would never shop there. But um but yeah, no, I think I think there is an aspect to it that yeah, Cordelia's just like that well and and we even get that great you, you know, great line where um Willow's sort of explaining to her like, you're not a cat. <laughs> You're, yeah. you know, your your name is Cordelia and whatever. And she's like, yeah, thanks, Willow. And when did you become yeah. crazy? Like, what exactly is going on here? Um, I, I love that. But but it's like, yeah, she's like, I know who I am. Like, you again, you get that sense of she's very, very much in touch with herself. It may not be a nice self as other people see it, but, yeah. you know, she knows who she is. And, and it's not, um, you know, it's not something that she's necessarily willing to compromise on whether we think she should or not (laughs) right um there's another interesting thing with which i thought of with cordelia which is i feel like she could be seen as being kind of like the 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 girl buffy becomes when she puts the dress on the kind of mm -hmm. shallow vapid only cares about status only cares about boys and in some ways that's true, but then when you put them next to each other, you realize how much agency and intelligence and willpower right. really has. Like you she and maybe she is superficial in her in her priorities or the things that she cares about, you know, but but there's something else going on because when you put it next to someone who's really like that, mm-hmm. I don't know, it just shows her it shows the kind of three dimensional qualities of her character and her personality. Yeah. You know? So I thought that was nice to kind of give you that contrast and make you realize that, you know, Cordelia, because, and I guess Cordelia is set up because it's her, that angel is sitting with, you know, in the bronze when Buffy's late. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Buffy's not only jealous of the, noble ladies from 200 years ago she's also jealous of cordelia who buffy probably sees as today's version of that you know right right the kind of you know the kind of girl that buffy thinks guys want to date so it's almost like buffy's costume is a parody of cordelia too oh yeah no But, but it's it's so it's so thin compared to Cordelia, yeah, you know, and I, you don't realize that until you see them next to each other. I think you're right, and I and we get the line um, uh, where Willa says, you know, oh, Buffy Angel would never fall for her act for, her, for, right. for Cordelia's act, and and Buffy, what does Buffy point out about Cordelia? Oh, you mean that actually showing up wearing a stunning outfit, embracing personal hygiene act? Yeah, what it, act? It, it it's it's all <laughs> well, but it's all the physical things, right? Well, it's, right. Yeah. it's 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 one she's available she's there she shows up two she's wearing a stunning outfit and three she you know looks good she's combed her hair and put on makeup kind of thing like 
Buffy doesn't recognize that in Cordelia that there is the deeper thing. So I think I think that's right. I think from Buffy's perspective that there's very much a connection sort of being that that Buffy could be making between her and the women that she imagines Angel being afraid of. And that's or being afraid of being attracted to not afraid of being attracted to. And I think that that's seen in, in Buffy's very fear that Angel is attracted to Cordelia now, right? It's because she sees them as sort of being, uh, sees Cordelia as being sort of a modern day version of them. I think you're right. I think, uh, I think that's a good connection to make. Um, yeah. So, and I and think a, a flattering one for Cordelia, <clears throat> it comes off in her favor. That she is not as shallow as those women. Yeah. 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 I think yeah. so. No, I think you're right. I think if, if we haven't, you know, hit it into the heads of our listeners by now, <laughs> or I haven't, like, you shouldn't count out Cordelia. Like, she's, yeah. yes, she is shallow in certain ways, but but she's not stupid, and she's not, uh, like, like, you use the word agency, and I think that's a great word to use with her. I mean, it's not passive in any sort of way. Um, yeah. She's not passive in any sort of way. I don't know what I meant it's by, but, um, her personality, I think is what I was saying there is, uh-huh. it, you know, she, she definitely is dislikable, but we can kind of like her for, you know, the fact that she's dislikable in her own way. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and I think, and I think too, the fact that at least her unlikability is not an act that she's not, you know, sometimes you might wish that she acted nicer, but really it's refreshing to have, you know, an honest personality around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, so we, all right. We need to talk about Giles and we um, have about 10 minutes left, but before that, in just a couple minutes, I want to talk about Oz because we get a little more um, from him here. And I just, I want to make sure we don't let him slip by because yeah, it, it's easy to overlook. So one, so first of all, we get his <laughs> his um, run in with Cordelia there, yeah. which is just fantastic. Yeah, uh, he just goes by Devin now. Yeah, he he just goes by Devin now. Um, and and her whole is uh, you know tell him I don't care and I didn't even mention it and that I tell didn't, him see, I didn't you, see you and that's you, yeah. fine. <laughs> um, but so. The, the more important thing. So then we get the immediate. Um, the t- Well, there's two interactions that he has with Willow. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if interactions are quite the right word. Um, we get the first one where like right after that scene, he turns around and there's Willow as a ghost yeah. who he doesn't know. And there's the whole sorry, 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 sorry. sorry. Yeah. Right? Like that's, and, and of course, why can't I meet a nice girl like that? And right. Straight into Willow. with 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 Cordelia. Right. Right. As she's walking away. Um yeah, and there I mean the whole sort of dramatic irony there. Um which we already know. And and it's funny because like when we were talking about um when he saw her in the bronze in the Eskimo outfit, yeah. like he couldn't see anything but her face. And of course yeah. now he can't see he can't her see at her all. <laughs> like yeah. like we're like, how could she possibly be more covered up? This is how she could possibly be more covered up. Well, um, right. And it's and I did have that too, that Willow, this is the second time we've seen Willow choose costumes that cover her from head to toe. Exactly. Like, 
Yeah. Um, and every time Oz has seen her, she has been in costume all three times and different costumes each time. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so, right. So he sees her walking home after she's ditched the ghost and, you know, she just literally gained that confidence that she didn't have before. Right. I mean, this is like if there's a moment where Willow, you know, steps over a line, you know, posit- in a positive manner. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is it. Like, she's, you know, she's walking home. She's, like, all but, like, whist- whistling and clicking her heels together, you know, yeah. like, um, and and he just sees her. And it's, like, that everything, like, and, and it's still kind of, like, we're still not sure why Oz was drawn to her in an Eskimo outfit before. But something about the way she was just standing there struck her. And now to see her so confidently walking, like, doesn't even notice him. Doesn't even know he's there. Doesn't even look his way, whatever. And he sees her and it's just like, man, there's something about her. So, yeah, I mean, pretty obvious. Like, I don't don't feel like I'm putting a lot into Oz's character here. But I just, I felt like that needed to be mentioned. Yeah. Um, Definitely. Uh, well we should also mention larry real quick larry tries to beat up xander later xander beats up larry um (laughs) and gets a weird sense of closure (laughs) gets a weird sense of closure um larry larry returns in later episodes um but he's kind of a fun character but yeah i mean his you know it that's it it, it, it's a sort of a, a different sort of confidence right that xander needs from willows um but it's that, uh, yeah, yeah, that that that's sort of the the schoolyard scrappiness that he has to gain, yeah, <laughs> um, and and get back his reputation that Buffy unwittingly and and very you know good intentionedly uh, takes from him. Yeah, and it makes a nice parallel too of him wanting to stand up for himself, right, and then Buffy standing up for herself that nobody mm. rescues her from spike at the end she yeah does it herself you know so it's kind of a nice little bit of foreshadowing there i think right right um although xander does save her from the pirate larry that's um, true he, yeah he, no he i was thinking more and... of i was thinking more of a spike but yeah right, that's true right. he does well no but i think i mean well, I think that's the, another aspect the role of the reversal peril. too. Right, I right. mean, so it it there's that role reversal aspect of Buffy rescuing Xander from bullies, and then Xander rescuing Buffy from pirates and monsters <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> yeah, Larry the pirate. Um, all right. So moving on to Giles. Yeah, we need time to talk about all this stuff. Oh, Tell- I wanted I want to say too. Well, maybe really quick before we do Giles, because I want to spend more time on Giles. Um, again, with the roles and dualities and hidden identities, you've got Janus, this mon- mm-hmm. the, the god that Ethan is, yeah. is praying to. Um, he's two-faced, you know, so he's all about dualities and contrasts and mm-hmm. hidden, hidden sides to yourself. And even Ethan's logo for his costume shop is the comedy drama masks. Um, mm-hmm. Right. You know, and the the Greek theater mask. So that kind of evokes that two-faced nature, you know. Mm-hmm. So 
it kind of just ties in neatly with the themes. So anyway, but that was very quick. Now we can talk about Giles. Go ahead. Talk about Giles. So what the heck? Um, <laughs> so here's the thing. So yeah, so Giles is potentially wearing as much of a costume as anybody else, if not more so, because if this is a role that he's playing, he's playing it every day pretty convincingly um so uh i'm not sure what to do with this so he's got this secret past uh apparently he was known as the ripper um he beats up the guy with like no problem so i don't know yeah, he where has, that came from he, he has been... no sympathy for ethan does he he, he no or no, no no even um not sympathy, but what what's the word? Like, no restraint, even. Yeah, no. I mean, he totally takes him out with, like, one punch, which... So, I guess we're supposed to question whether his whole bumbling thing with training Buffy has been an act all along, because mm. he's clearly got these ninja moves that we didn't know about. Um, it's kind of implied that he's maybe torturing Ethan or roughing him up off, off screen, because yeah. we cut away, and then we cut back, and he's sort of cleaning his hands and then they cut away and he cut back and he's cleaning his hands. And then Ethan says, okay, okay, you just need to break the thing. So he right. made him yeah, talk he, while Ethan, we were off. Like, Ethan gives up pretty, either pretty easily yeah. or there's a or, lot left in the imagination. And he says, he says he'll kill him. He says, why would I and, tell and we you believe this? Him. And he says, you know, you can live. That's why. And yeah. And you believe that he'll do it. Yeah, you believe um, him, and and more importantly, Ethan clearly believes it too, right? Because I mean, yeah. he, you, you know, you almost expect. I remember back to the first time I saw this episode. I totally expected Giles to break the Janice statue, and for like the changes to have been made permanent or something. Like you know, like Ethan fooled him into you know not breaking the spell, but like worsening the spell somehow. Right, um, and. But that doesn't happen. Right, it can't all have been that straightforward, but it is. Giles yeah. is just that tough. <laughs> right, right, right. And and right. And that's when you sort of realize that like Ethan knows there's no fooling around going here. And that's yeah. that's when you realize, right, sort of the full well, or you suspect the full extent of what Giles is capable of, which is exactly what Ethan says. He you know, um uh, uh oh, where is it? He says he says, um, who are you, the Watcher, sniveling, tweed-clad guardian of the Slayer and her kin? I think not. I know who you are, Rupert, and I know what you're capable of. But they don't, do they? They have no idea where you come from. Like, that's ominous. That's... Yeah. Um, right. We, I mean, it's not Even just... now, we feel like we're just getting a peek through, like, a translucent, snow-frosted window. Like, we're, you know, yeah. we, we're not really seeing the full extent, even based on just this sort of shocking display that we get. And sometimes. it's not even just like a hidden um, strength that he didn't want revealed. Like, it's not like you get a peek through Clark Kent and you see Superman strength or something. It's like ominous in the sense of it, it, it makes it sound like a villain, mm -hmm. right? Like the Ripper. Oh yeah. Oh, it's not yeah. a good nickname to no, have. No, no, we <laughs> and, don't. We don't get the sense like, that this is right. Like, no, and he's I covering mean, up having helped orphans when he was younger. Right. Exactly. No, because and like, I mean, not that that makes Ethan a saint, but like all the stuff he's saying is like, you get the sense that like 
it, it reminds me more of like Angel and Spike. Like it's not like they're ancient enemies. It's like they're ancient allies that really Angel is more like Spike than he would want you to believe. And there's something about Giles, which is aligned with Ethan, that they have this shared past yeah. is the sense that I got. Right. Um, and, and I mean, he clearly says like champion of the innocent. That's quite an act. Um, mm -hmm. So this whole, like, like, implying that he wasn't always that way and maybe even the opposite of that. Yeah. Um, and of course we get Giles saying it's not an act. It's who I am. And so, yeah. and of course in a episode about costumes and how costumes yeah. change you and how you change who you are based on what costume you wear. I mean, there's, there's a number of levels there, you know, is who is Giles is, and and more abstractly, are people always who they are? Like, you know, is, okay, you can sort of accept the fact that maybe Giles did some foolish things when he was younger. People do mm -hmm. foolish things when they're young. Does that mean they're always that person or are they not? Is Giles always that person? We don't know what he did. But yeah. clearly, like, he doesn't. He doesn't argue about what he did. He says, it's no act. It's who I am. He's talking about who he is now. Not right now. He's yeah. not denying necessarily yeah. Ethan's accusation or confirmation of what Giles did when he was younger. Like he's Giles doesn't argue that point at all. Like not even once does he say, mm -hmm. I never did that. He just says, it's who I am now. I yeah. That I am and, and a he champion says, and, of innocence. And Ethan has that line about, you said the Ripper was long gone. So, like, mm. that that is a past that he acknowledges, but which he says is behind him. Right, right. As Giles is doing something that we would never have expected him to do and kicking him while he's down, you know, And he's Ethan. saying, you said the Ripper was gone as he's beating him up. So right. clearly it's not... Implying the that gone. there's still a part of him that is yeah. the Ripper. That is capable um, of this, yeah. We will learn a bit more about Giles' sure so. past. Uh, uh, past. Um, be very disappointed if we I, didn't. I would like to say that um, there was at one point a, uh, a, a, a plan from Joss and Anthony Head to continue the story of Giles in a spinoff called Ripper. Um, Interesting. And, and um, I think it was actually at one point going to even be on the BBC. So I um, would have been intrigued to sort of see that. Was in, this post Buffy or running alongside? Post Buffy. Okay. Um, I even saw recently, like within the past couple of months, since we started this podcast, an interview with, um, Anthony Head saying that that's still not totally out of the question. Um, Interesting. And and so you know, I don't want to give away too much or anything. Yeah. I mean, we like I said, we will learn more throughout the series. Um, not necessarily a whole lot more, but we definitely will see Ethan again. We see the card at the end. I don't think it's a he surprise. Says we'll see him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's a surprise to say that we will see him again. Um, yeah. And we will learn more about Giles's past. Perhaps not – well, I'll say it this way. I've watched, you know, both Buffy and Angel, and I've read up through well, – I've read season eight of the comic books, not season nine, and I'm still not convinced I know nearly enough as I 
as much as I want to about Giles's past. Okay. So, like, and that's okay. I mean, there's, like, there's the, going to be questions. A, a heavy dose of mystery is good. Yeah, yeah, but but we will learn more, and so we should definitely keep talking about it. Um, He's kind of like the Shepherd book of the series. Isn't oh he? yes, that's a great analogy because I think you're right. There is definitely something dark, and we uh, yeah, and in Firefly, of course, or is it Serenity? Even where. Um, Mal says, you know, one of these days you're going to have to tell me how you know so much about yeah. the Alliance. And he's, no, I don't. <laughs> no. <Nope. laughs> and you, Too bad. You don't ever learn. Well, I, I mean, there's a comic book that tells you about Shepard, in, in the canon but, of the show, um, you don't ever in, learn. In, yeah. in the show itself, you don't. No, you have to kind of <sighs> let your imagination run wild. But um, So, yes. But, I mean, yeah, you picked up on everything. Yes, Ethan and, and Giles go way back. And clearly there was... You know, I mean, it, the the Ripper or Ripper is a nickname that Giles had. Like many people who try to run away from their nicknames, there's always like that one person who, you know, brings it back and just yeah. won't let it go. Um, but yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. I like I like that stuff with Giles. Um, before we hop into Doctor Who, I just I did want to bring up, and I know we've we're a few minutes over, but I did want to bring up. Um, just a few production notes here because I wanted to note, first of all, this was written by Carl Ellsworth um, and it's actually the only episode of Buffy or Angel. He didn't, he didn't write for Angel either, uh, either. Um, uh, but it's the only episode that he wrote for Buffy. Also appears to be um, his first TV writing credit from what I could find. Um, he did work previously as like a production assistant on a show or a couple shows. Um, so I thought very strong um, performance just from yeah. him as far as the writing goes a lot of great lines um, we get the line that we sort of referenced already she couldn't have dressed up like Xena um, <laughs> and the interesting thing about that is Carl Ellsworth did actually go and write a couple episodes of Xena after Buffy um, a couple years later in like 2000 wrote on several other shows um, sort of on and off in 2005 he went on to um, start writing movie scripts. Uh, a couple of the movies he's actually worked on, either written or co-written. Um, one was Red Eye, which was directed by Wes Craven. Um, I never saw it, but it's, uh, I think, uh, Rachel McAdams is in it and okay. um, a couple other people. And and it's about, you know, like a haunted airplane or something. Um, he co-wrote Disturbia with Shia LaBeouf. He, he didn't co-write it with Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf starred in the movie. He co-wrote, I forget who... Carl Ellsworth co-wrote it with, but he co-wrote okay. that. Um, he also co-wrote the remake of The Last House on the Left, which was uh, originally the 1972 movie was another Wes Craven movie. Last House on the Left, the 2009 version, was one. Um, I don't remember who the director was, but it was a remake of that. Um, and actually, just sort of a personal note, that movie came up a number of times as I was researching um, my Cabin in the Woods paper that I presented right, earlier right, this year. Right. Um, as as a sort of a, a another of that genre, um, mm-hmm. and then Carl Ellsworth also rewrote uh, the remake of Red Dawn, um, which okay. just came out last year. So yeah. um, some pretty some pretty strong stuff. Red Dawn, um, I still like the original version better with mm-hmm. um, Charlie Sheen, Patrick Swayze, and 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 the crew, um, Leah Thompson. Crazy not to, but but. Um, <laughs> You know, Chris Hemsworth was in the new one. It, it it was it was okay. It wasn't bad. Disturbia, I quite liked. I haven't seen the other two, but um, Last House on the Left, I believe, got some pretty decent um, 
not as I, I think people generally said it wasn't as good as the original, but Red Eye I know got some fairly decent acclaim, um, and of course Wes, Wes Craven um, is 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 great anyway. So um, yeah, went on to do some good things. So I mean, definitely definitely some strong writing there um, in that. But let's move on. Um, and since we're talking about production notes, I think you had a couple things you wanted to say about Doctor Who. So I'll I'll go ahead and let you start, um, which okay. I know is unusual, but we're kind of in that mode. So we'll yeah, well, you know. I just have one or two things and then you can start with where you want to go. Um, so production notes, I just want to talk about the writer. This is Stephen Moffat again. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I've said, his episodes, particularly in these first, uh, few seasons are, uh, always some of my favorites and a lot of people's favorites. Um, this won him his second consecutive Hugo Award uh, wow. for short form presentation. Very um, nice. So, yay for Moffat. Um, he beat out uh, a couple episodes of Battlestar Galactica, uh, Stargate SG One, and actually hmm. um, School Reunion, the last the episode last week's episode written by Toby Whithouse, hmm. um, and then a another. Doctor Who's story, which is later this season, was also okay. nominated, so I'll flag that when it happens. Um, so, Moffat going strong. Um, and I don't know if this is of interest or not, but it's just one of those funny little writerly things that this is a case of sometimes I think a writer will propose an idea for a story that they want to tell, and sometimes they'll be given an assignment and told here's mm-hmm. an idea, do what you want with it. And Russell Davies... Or here's had, a rough storyline or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and Russell Davies had written um, a miniseries called Casanova, um, okay. which was about this period. And um, in his research, became interested in Madame de Pompadour. Um, actually, Casanova was the miniseries that David Tennant was in when he got cast. So that's... He was writing that and doing research. And um, so he was fascinated with this... with this historical figure. So mm. his assignment to Stephen Moffat was write a story with Madame de Pompadour. And that was all he gave him. And this is what you get. So it's just one of those nice things, you know, you give a really good writer a prompt and they come up with something pretty special. So yeah. um, that's all I have. So start us off. Well, and so we definitely, I wanted to start off with the Madame, um, <laughs> Renette Poisson and talk about her um one i just want to say like i thought the actress here and i her name escapes me i didn't write it down um sophia miles okay i thought she was great like just as in in the way she portrayed um renette and and the way that um you know her interaction with the doctor was just fantastic here um yeah so i definitely definitely laud her for that um but yeah, no, I, I thought it was a really interesting uh, take on on sort of the whole setup. Um, and I was trying to think, I I know I've seen like stories where you get sort of these visitations from something, a creature, a person, or whatever, over the course of a lifetime. But most of the time that you get those types of stories, you get it from the perspective of the person who's being visited, right? Like Uh you you get it from that perspective of, you know, Oh, they're going through their life and throughout these different periods, you know, something happened. What, and it might not even be a person, but like, you know, certain events or certain 
um, sorts of things happen. Um, so I, I really liked the perspective that you get, you know, from the doctor and, and Rose and Mickey's perspective of, you know, looking in on this initially girl and then young woman and then, and slightly less young woman, um, you know, and, and sort of seeing the ways that she grows and, and, and comes to anticipate and, um, you know, the, the doctor's appearance and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of like, again, to use my Peter and Wendy analogy, it's more like from Peter's point of view rather than from Wendy's point of view. And there is some of that, like in Peter Pan too, that when he shows up and she's aged and everything, but I think you're right. There is more of a sense of that you're identifying with Wendy and you're waiting for Peter to come back. Whereas this time Mm -hmm. it's more like you're with the doctor trying to get back and each time you've gone a little bit too far you know yeah and it and it's over in the blink before you've even you know before you've even realized it yeah um and and i you know it's i i I don't know i guess i just i sort of like the aspect too of it that um you know the doctor is to her you know a very mysterious person right he's someone Mm -hmm. who just sort of pops up when when things are bad um and and who comes and saves her and of course you know who wouldn't fall in love you know with someone yeah. like that like that's you know and 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 not just like but from the age of of a young girl like you know that's what happens and 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 so um i like um the second or third time i guess that that he sees her and it's the first time at, that she's an adult um before she's sort of officially become the mistress to the king and um she just sort of boils it down to so many questions so little time and then kisses him like it's like <laughs> not like let's just sort of cut to the chase here like, yeah this i have so many questions and none of them are going to be answered but of course later a lot of them are when they do their little mind meld thing yeah um, and and I, like at first i thought that was kind of cheesy i'm like oh okay you know like oh vulcan mind meld vulcan like here, mind we, meld, here yeah. we go but I really like that she takes the opportunity to reciprocate. Yeah. Um, and you get that sense that that's never happened before. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, and, and he's like, oh, I try not to make a habit of this, whatever, whatever. And we're focused on what he's doing. And then she makes the very lucid point that, you know, it's, it's, once a door is open, it can be a step through both ways. Like, yeah. you know, why would you, why would you think that only you could read my mind? Like, why, why would this have to be a one way flow of information? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I think, you know, going back to, again, like what we were talking about with in Buffy, like the portrayal of, the 18th century debutante, you know, uh, being sort of vapid and weak minded and allowing men or hoping at least that men will do everything. Like we get a very different picture of that same sort of woman here. Like this is, you know, she's very much a courtly person, but, um, has again, agency like you used, you know, earlier in talking about Cordelia, like, you know, we definitely see that here with Renette that she, she's not someone who just, um, 
sits around necessarily waiting, although she certainly does call on the doctor when she feels that she needs him. Um, you know, she's, she's not only relying on the doctor and, and of course you have to wonder how much of that is the doctor's influence himself when he comes to her very young and, um, you know, finds the, the, the repair droid underneath her bed in the sort of quintessential home for monsters, um, that exists for little kids, you know, that, how much of the way he acts and the things he says there is, um, you know, what ends up helping her and sort of giving her the courage later or, or the fortitude to, um, sort of be her own person, um, in that way. And, and I don't want to say like that, that that's necessarily true because I think we even see glimpses of that as her in her as a young child. Right. I mean, she does turn to face the monster on her own and sort of, you know, in a childish sort of way, petulantly asked questions, you know, put to the, put to the, 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 the repair droid. But, um, and I like how she's sort of nonplussed about the doctor being in her fireplace. Like, right. (laughs) It's just like, hello. Okay. What are you doing in there? And then he's like, okay, uh, enjoy the fire. She's like, okay, bye. (laughs) Like, like you get a hint of that kind of, strength of will even then like she's not one to run and scream and fly out of the room like she's kind of interested in the adventure of this man being in her fireplace so Mm. yeah Uh, and and then that carries i mean again like she's not physically strong in the sense that that buffy is but there are other ways of depicting that kind of strength of character too you know that her her kind of stoic bravery of knowing mm. what her future is going to be because she can hear it in the next room and oh, yeah. going to face it anyway, you know, and, yeah. you know, and her kind of being calm and dignified for the sake of the other courtiers and everything. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. The, the hearing of the screams because uh, they're right. So she says, oh, those screams, is that my future? And, and Rose is like, yes, or whatever. And then she goes, then I must take the slower path. And, it was interesting because the first time I heard that, I thought of it as her saying, oh, I must be strong and take the slower path. But then I realized the second time that, like, actually, no, I think she's saying, like, it must be the fact that I take this. Or, like, she's sort of coming to a logical conclusion, almost of disappointment mm. to, to realize that, oh, then... I don't choose to stay here. Like the choice that I make in the future is actually to go on the slower path. Interesting. Um, yeah, no, that hadn't occurred to me. That's really nice. And, but I, th- I mean, I think there's definitely an ambiguity there because I think there is sort of a sense of duty at the same time as the realization of what she actually does is coming to her. And, and they're sort of tied together, even though they're independent, like they're, you know, you know, I do think that she does have that sort of sense of duty, even though she, she's the mistress of the king. Like she has no official duty to go back and, you know, face whatever for like for her people or whatever. But yet she's the one who comes in, right? It's not the king who gives the speech about, and yeah. we are French, you know, right. like, like, right. <laughs> like, which was just kind of a, a funny, but moving in its own way, you know, sort of, sort of speech there. Like, She's the one who does that. She's the one who calms everyone down and she's the one who defies them and says, no, my answer is going to be no. I'm not going to go with you. Um, 
and set foot in this other reality. Um, which is interesting, giving her total willingness to go with the doctor and set foot in his reality again later. But, um, yeah, you know, no, again, she, she, she does have some kind of a sense of duty, it seems, when she's saying that, you know, then I must take the slower path, you know, but it's also a realization that she actually does take the slower path and, and sort of a chagrin at, at that revelation and at realizing what her future is to be. Yeah, it's more of like, like you said, it's not so much a duty to any official royal duty as much as to her own life journey and her own, like, to time in a way. It's like, well, right. this is what I, I hear myself make this choice and I'm sort of, you know, it's my duty to fulfill that. Yeah. And... And that kind of goes along with Rose's conversation with her about um, what's supposed to happen when Rose mm-hmm. is like, you know, none of this was like, you weren't supposed to have either, you know, the doctor or the monsters. Like these were never part of your original plan, whatever that means, you know? And, yeah. and she's like, well, and she says that like, well, what does that even mean? And I wouldn't choose anything other than what happened. Like th- this yeah. is what happened. What do you mean by what is this supposed word, you know, that you use? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's, you only have one life and, yeah, it, and what happens is what happens. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Who, how do you know what's supposed to happen? What isn't supposed to happen? What happens is what happens. Um, and, and, and so I think that's, like you like, said, it, it makes me think of Aslan. No one's ever told what would have happened. It's just you you get what you get. And and can anything else possibly have happened? Like sure. is there even another real possibility or is that just sort of us you know wishing that Ah. Uh, let's revisit that topic. Uh Oh dear. Next week. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. I will try I'll try to remember. Um the so anyway so yes um so where was i all right well and and so i mean of course so we have the doctor and the monsters and there's sort of there's a lot kind of between that idea right the the mm-hmm. um who has nightmares about whom uh yeah. you know comes up a, a couple times um but there was there there was a particular, uh, and uh, just the flip. It, it, it's just a nightmare. Don't worry about it. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like that kind of that kind of goes into too the idea of you know she keeps coming back to this idea of the lonely angel. But I think the angel is significant in the sense of like a guardian angel that this is someone who, as she says, watches over her. Mm. You know that as far as she's concerned. I mean. It, it is so cleverly constructed that the whole thing for the doctor takes place in what, like an hour, yeah. you know, yeah, like it's in, almost, in real time. It's almost real time. It's him. like yeah. pretty much in real time. Well, except, her, except we know that, well, yeah, for the doctor, right? Because he goes and he comes back and Rose is like, I've been waiting for five hours, you know, five and a half hours. Always yeah, wait for yeah. five and a half hours. But you know, for him, it's been a couple minutes basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess he spent some more time when he was dancing with the French, but, um, <laughs> Uh, but <laughs> yes. but more or less could have danced time. all night. Yeah. Um, um. So more or less real time for him. Whereas for her, it's 
years and years and years. And uh, sorry, you're done. <laughs> sorry. Thinking about dancing and dancing. bananas. Moffat, um, Moffat and the dancing. That is a thing yes. for him. And, and, and bananas. And bananas, yes. Um, and I feel like there might be one or two other little Moffat in-jokes too, but I don't yeah. know. I'll have to think about that. But, um, uh, what did I well, say? Well, and, and so, oh, sorry. So, so his, so for her, you know, spread out, I don't know how many times she meets with him. Ten times or something, maybe, over, if that, over the course yeah, of half her a dozen entire, or, yeah, yeah, over the course of her entire life. So you, and literally for her, the monsters and the doctor, they go together that when mm. one shows up, the other is not far behind. Yes. It and seems that, you cannot and have one without the other. And that, and, and that makes logical sense because he's trying to fix, he's trying to save her from like in a matter of a couple hours, there is a problem which he is right. working to fix. And well, so it, he's following yeah. the droids and anticipating them. And so of course they're always one right behind the other because they're trying to outwit each other. Whereas for her, when you're removed from the kind of practical problem solving aspect for her, you get this mythic sense of this guardian angel who turns up when yeah. you need him most, you right, know? Right. And oh. so you get the two of that side by side, which is just so great. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and it's right. Yeah. It is a mythic battle or, or a spiritual battle sort of going on like, you know, this whole, angels and demons kind of yeah. you know idea um yeah no and 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 the tying of the two together right and it goes back to that whole which we've seen in other contexts both in doctor who and buffy you know of what causes what you know like yeah. is you know who's who's really the cause of of the things that happen here is it the monsters is it the angel is it both is it simultaneous you know is it is there sort of a dualistic you know, round and round we go and, and, um, you know, there's, you can't really have one without the other. Um, which sort of seems to be the implication here because when the monsters are gone, so is the, so doctor. Is the doctor, you know, like that's, yeah, that's what ends up happening anyway. Um, and, and so, um, <laughs> I, and that's the way it's been, you know. That's what we've talked about that before. Yeah. That he's not one to stay around for the cleanup. No. His job is the monsters. And call that what you will, you know, whether you want to label that as the lack of responsibility as, as you know, Margaret Sothene does, you know, or well, you could just say that that's, you know, whatever. It's, but it's he, interesting. he leaves when the monsters are defeated. It's interesting to me how Renette knows that. And I, I almost said knows that intuitively, either intuitively or because of her, you know, poking around in the doctor's head. Yeah. Um, she knows that. And, and, you know, the doctor, you know, the doctor sitting there, you know, Oh, I'm going to have to take the slow path. And, and, Oh, I, I have to learn about money. What is this money <laughs> you really speak of? I never really understood money. <laughs> and where do you get and, money? <laughs> And she, she calls him out on it. She's like, "Really, really, you're stuck on the slow path." Well, you like, know, and he has no idea what that means. Like, and no, he he's doesn't. Kind of, he's just kind of, huh? The slow path. This yeah. will be interesting. And you know, for him, this is like a vacation. Like he's not taking this right. Oh, this yeah. is not real time for him. Yeah. No, he has he has no idea. Um, 
it's like you know going to the state fair and trying to milk a cow you don't have any idea exactly. of what it means to be a farmer yeah. you know yeah. i mean so it, it, it you know for for him yeah he's sort of trying to wrap his head around money and sort of these high concept things that you know he he, he has no idea of the practical use and she knows she's like you know, really, are you going to stick around? And it's interesting to me that she she intentionally shows him the fireplace yeah. that she had transported. And I'm, you know, she may not have known, but I'm sure she must have strongly suspected that the very act of doing them, doing that, will make him go away. Like he'll, he, he you, can fix it. Yeah, yeah, like, like. You sort of see that in her eye, and and I think that's why this actress is such a great job because you yeah. like she doesn't say it, she doesn't you know allude to it in any way. She just shows him that it's there, but yeah. you know that she knows by showing him that that she's pretty much you know consigning yeah. herself to the rest of her life without him, and or at least a long period of time before she ever sees him again. Um, and of course, we get in the letter later that she sort of suspects that he's not going to come back before she's dead. Um, that's after she's sick, which I, d- I don't know historically, like, um, what she died of. Well, just even like, you know, when she knew or whatever, like how long she was ill or all of that. Um, but, but the, I mean, and that doesn't really matter. I mean, the King says it's an illness. Okay. She got ill and died. Like that's whatever. Clearly there was some sort of period where she was declining and knew that it was coming. Um, in the story anyway. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's just, it's just sort of amazing to me that she did that, um, knowing that, that he would probably be leaving. Um, and then of course there's, there's the hopeful, right? The, oh, go, go pack a bag and pick out a star. It's such a wrench. Oh, and you you know, the second he steps through. You're not going to make it. (laughs) The second he steps through and you hear Rose say, you've been gone for five and a half. I've been waiting for five and a half hours. You know, he can't return in any reasonable amount of time. I mean, he stepped away for two minutes before and came back weeks later. Yeah. You know, this. Yeah, this is just tragic in sort of the worst way. I know. Um, And the last image of her other than the coffin is. Yeah. Standing at the window with that, like allowing herself to kind of get excited and try to pick out which star she wants to visit and everything. Yeah. And you wonder how long she was there and how long she waited with a bag perhaps packed. I know. Um, oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, I feel like we probably should talk about other characters at some point here. Um, but just, of course, the final revelation that the ship's name is the SS Madame de Pompadour. Mm. Uh, very, very interesting there as well. And, of course, yeah. um, sheds light, I suppose, on the reason for why the repair droids were so intent on her. Because um, we get that question at the end, and the doctor's like, we may never know why they chose her, you know, yeah. why they felt they needed her. But that seems to be the reason. And... um very telling, of course, with his conversation about title, you know, the names of the stars. Well, what, what you, you know, all the names of the stars. Well, names are just titles. Titles don't tell you anything. Yeah. Um, and, well, Actually, and, before we talk about the setting, we should talk about that whole naming thing. Well, I was um, just going to say, of course, I mean, that's, it's, it's the very name and it's, it's, 
It doesn't mean it, right? I mean, it's the name of a ship. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. you name ships whatever. Like, I've seen some really bizarre names for ships, and they don't necessarily have meaning, but they also have sort of all the meaning. Like, it's what makes it, – it gives a personality almost to the ship. And, yeah. And that's – Well, you know, and it, I mean, there's an element to connect it back to Buffy, too. Is there an element of of naming is adding significance to something? It's almost like, you know – a role that you're playing it's it's something that maybe isn't your given name or your true name but it's a title is something that you you know put on something or put on yourself yeah yeah you people know? talk about you know wearing different hats it's the same yeah. idea you know like yeah it's very much um getting a title and, and especially I, I would imagine has more significance than um you, you know in sort of a courtly setting like yeah. like Renette, which means little queen, right? Is that, am I right in saying that that's what her name, that, uh, not, that's a good question. That, I don't that, know. And that's not her actual name, right? That's no, her, it was that's, Shannon Antoinette or something. Okay. Right. So Renette is a name that's given it's to a her. Nickname, so it's, yep. It, it, yep. it's a name given to her. And so she has a number of names, Madame de Pompadour, Renette, and then her actual name, which you just said, and I still can't remember it. <laughs> um, but but it has no bearing whatsoever on the story other than the fact that she had some other name and it's yeah. some it's something nobody calls her so yeah i mean there's there's a couple of different layers there with with the naming of things and titles don't tell you anything and they don't necessarily mean anything except that they mean who you are yeah. like you know except yeah. that it sort of defines you in a way so like the doctor. You I know. was just going to say, so what does that tell us about the doctor? Yeah. Uh, and we've had the doctor who joke a couple times, you know, Moffat used that in the empty child and other writers have used it. I know Russell Davies has used it too. Like using it as like a punchline, right? Yeah. Like, well, we got like it a, in, a little, in, the, in the Christmas special. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, well. And once and and Clive's website and like it's a mm-hmm. little ironic reference to the name of the show and the fact that he doesn't have a name. But Moffat's taking that and adding apologies for the horn beeping if anybody can hear that. I have no control over the traffic on my street. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, what was I saying? Moffat is taking what is kind of an ironic meta self-referential joke and making it into like a serious plot question you know she says doctor doctor who it's more than just a secret isn't it and that's when he kind of steps back and says what did you see right again that idea that she's seen something that maybe few if any other people have seen and he's sort of put off by that and not only did she see something but she saw something while she's referencing his lack of a name. Um, and yeah. what is it if it's more than just a secret? Well, and it's it's interesting that given, I mean, this is, if there's anything that is a whirlwind romance, it's this, right? Yeah. I mean, like, this is sort of the epitome of a whirlwind romance. But you sort of come away with the feeling that, at least for from the 2005 series, you know, mm-hmm. on Renette knows the doctor by the time she dies better than anyone 
anywhere, possibly even better than himself. Like, you know, like, like because she has that sort of external perspective, it, and, and she seems to And that peek into his mind too. Right. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. Like the external perspective of his internal mind, like, like, like it's not, it, 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 you know, obviously he can experience and, and we sort of get a glimpse of the type of thing that he experiences when Rose is, um, possessed by the TARDIS and, and, you know, he's like, Oh, that's how I feel all the time is, you know, Mm -hmm. doesn't it drive you mad? But like Rose doesn't get anything about his actual experiences, right? It's just, this is the sort of thing that he sees, but it's not like this is his whole history and his emotions and, you know, whatever. So that's what Renette gets. And, just the fact of her sort of compassion for it and, and, and empathy with him mm-hmm. uh, um, about, you know, the, the sort of things that he's gone through and, and, and um, the understanding that she comes to about his nature and about his character and her acceptance, um, which goes back to sort of what I was saying before, her acceptance that by showing him the fireplace, she knows that he's going to be leaving, but at the same time, she knows he could never stay there. He would wither, you yeah. know, if he had to walk the slow path. Um, so yep. anyway, uh, yeah. And, and then too, okay. So if we do suppose that she knows him as well as anyone, if not better than anyone, at least anyone's still alive. I mean, yeah, maybe there we were, were like time of, Lords yeah. who knew him better, but exactly. Like, um, um, or, or, if they did, it was millennia ago or whatever. So right, and then, well, yeah, course, and it, like I mean, and they're all dead. So exactly, yeah, you know. and um, and then of course she dies mm-hmm. with the knowledge of whatever it is that she knew. You know, so like not that I think like I don't mean to say that that's a big plot point. Like, oh, Renette knew some really specific thing that no, no, no. You know, but like there's that sense of well. Well, there just went the one person who maybe really, you know, who had this insight. And maybe she did have some insight that would be important to know that went with her, you know. Well, and I think, yeah, we just get sort of a snippet of that in in the letter at the end. Um, I've seen the world inside your head and know that all things are possible. I mean, that's obviously somewhat vague, but also somewhat revealing. Like, I mean, it's like... She's there, even though she's dead, she's commiserating with him, you know, mm-hmm. in, in that sort of way. Um, but, you know, at the same time, not all things are possible, right? Like, I mean, well, even right. as, I mean, even as yeah. we're hearing that line being read, we know, like, he couldn't save her. Yeah. And No, and I have that, too, like, <clears throat> that all these things about promises, that it, the episode starts with her saying come here you promised and then again rose when she's delivering the message says that he promises to be there he'll be there when you need him all these things and he will be there with the monsters he can save you from that but he can't save you from time and he can't save you from death you know those things are coming yeah and he has no control over those things so even though he's the lord of time as he says Hmm. when he's trying to sort of one-up king louis um he there are things which he can't 
promise and yeah. probably shouldn't promise. And yeah, like you said, he can't, he can save her from the droids, but not from, you know, the fate of every human being ever. Yeah, no. And not even any of them, really, in the long run. I mean, yeah. Um, which we yeah. sort of saw with, uh, saw last week with Sarah Jane. Yeah, no, this is really like kind of revisiting a lot of the same ideas, but like an accelerated version of that. Like rather than seeing, you know, uh, the majority of Sarah Jane's life sort of spread out over a long period and revisiting years later here, you're getting it like the Cliff Notes version, like bam, 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 straight through her life sort of in, you know, seven quick scenes, you know. Mm -hmm. So it, it is sort of like a compressed, you know, a compressed yeah. version of that same story. Definitely. Definitely. So what else? Um, well. What do we, oh, did we, we, did we want to talk a little bit more about, do we have any, anything else to say about Rose? Um. Yeah, I mean, so there's there's the conversation between Renette and Rose that they have. And I think the, the, the biggest sort of thing that I pull out there and, and going along with what we've already said about the Doctor and the monsters is what Renette says. Um, you and I don't you and I know, don't we, Rose? The Doctor mm -hmm. is worth the monsters like. Even all things considered. Like. Which is the it's, same thing that Sarah Jane said last week. You it's know, better in, to in have so been. many words. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It is. It, yeah, it, you know, it, it's better to have experience than not to. It's better to have loved than lost than, mm -hmm. um, you know, not to. Like, like again, like we talked about a couple episodes ago with... Yep. with no, I, I think um, this, this, this season, you know, a lot of these themes are coming up of sort of these types of love and loss relationships and stuff. Yeah. I think that's um, being, we're being reminded of that every week. And of course there's, so, um, right at the very beginning, um, the doctor, well, I guess, I guess when he first comes back, um, uh, from young girl Renette's room and sees, um, Rose and Mickey again, and he's like, you know, don't go looking for the monster, you know. And of course, what does Rose do? Go she waits, for the waits for Mickey to get it into his head. Like, yeah. we're going to look for the monster. So, I mean, yeah. um, this is what we do. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just part of it's just part of it. There's yeah. no more average days. Life with the Doctor. Oh well, that no, was another. No, I knew no there was another Moffat um, joke, which was the same. I think he said, and that was the Empty Child too. Was Someday I'm going to get that someone who I'm going to find someone who gets the whole don't wander off thing. So here again, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. next a year later. And it's him saying rule one. I tell them I do every single time. Don't wander off. Yeah. 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 And they um, still and ignoring course, him. Of course she does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, that's the whole point. With, with, right? with, yeah. No, with his full, you know, approval. I mean, if she didn't wander off, then you might, she wouldn't wonder. be the right kind of companion. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, oh. so no, I, I think so. There's that commiseration certainly between Rose and Renette that that really sort of strikes a chord. Um, 
I think you can see too how like the experience with Sarah Jane has softened Rose a little bit because there's still a little bit of that jealousy. Mm. Um, I mean, there's actually a lot of that jealousy. There's there's that jealousy in the sense of wishing that you know that of being disappointed when the doctor, you know, is looking at somebody else like that. But um, or or that kind of protectiveness of the fact right. that he's hers and everything, but minus the cattiness that we saw last week you know it's not the kind of you know it, it's yeah. not that kind of shallow jealousy and and it's more it's still there but she's more willing to look at what she and Renette have in common I think yeah and well and it's yeah yeah no I think you're right sorry I didn't mean to cut you off no go ahead well I was just gonna say you know as part of that same conversation is where we get Renette say, also saying one may tolerate a world of demons for the sake of an angel. And, and mm-hmm. I think that that's, um, I think that that's all tied together. Like, you know, if, if the demon is jealousy, right. The ugly green face demon, <laughs> um, so to speak, that, mm-hmm. that might be one of those things that you're willing to tolerate sort of just to be part of. Yeah you know, you're, um, being, you know, what it goes along with being a companion, uh, what that means, mm-hmm. man, that was a really bad way of saying what I was trying to say, but I got you. Um, anyway. Yeah, no, that that's something that she's, and I think that is a difference between last week and this week that she's yeah made peace with that aspect of traveling with him. Maybe. Although a I little think bit more. I think there's also the quickness of this relationship Although yeah, it takes sure. the whole course of, of Renette's life. Yeah, um, things might know. have been different if Renette had got on board the TARDIS. Right, and, right, right. Yeah. Um, so sort of the flip side of that is Rose seems completely comfortable with Mickey there at this right. point. Because um, and, and, <laughs> I and, don't think she really sees Mickey as like an equal partner. You know, Mickey is... Well, no, but 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 based on the look she gave him at the end of the last episode when... Yeah. When... He was like, can I come too? And, you know, she's like, whatever, that's fine. Like, yeah. And then suddenly she's like, oh, come on, let's go explore yeah, this there spaceship. Is, there is a, there's a behind the scenes reason for that discontinuity, which is that Moffat was told that Mickey was coming along for this episode, but nobody told him that Rose had that reaction okay. to him getting on board. Right. So he kind of wrote it. Now, probably someone should have spoken up, like the producers or the actors or whatever, and said, hey, this is a little inconsistent. Maybe you just figure enough time has passed that she's gone yeah. over it or something. But, but that's the reason, because he kind of said, oh, I would have written that differently if if he'd seen the look on her face. Right. You know, because he's writing it before the episode was shot and everything, so... Um, and and there is always sort of I mean you can kind of explain it away it, except in a couple of instances there's always a sort of sense that there may have been other adventures between episodes yeah it seems like, like a little like, time has passed like yeah. like there there yeah it's possible that other things have happened um, I mean I don't I don't that didn't like ruin the episode for me or anything no like, no I, I think I you can you can explain it away in a way that makes um, sense but. Um, but I did want to say about um, – well, there's there's the one kind of funny throwaway line. Um, you know, she was speaking English. I heard it. That's the TARDIS. It translates for you. Even French? Even like, French. Like, why would it translate French of all languages? 
Um, and and 18th century French. No well, that that's the most foreign language that Mickey can conceive of. Is yeah, yeah, even French. Yeah, <laughs> it's right across the. How channel. bizarre! Yeah, that you know, like yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> at one time the English court itself was speaking French. Yeah. Um, no, and yeah. and you know. No, and he's <laughs> just he's just and, a doofus. Yeah. Yeah, he's a doofus. Obviously, you know, comic relief guy. Uh, what's yep. a horse doing on a spaceship, Mickey? What's pre-revolutionary France doing on a spaceship? Get a little perspective here. Um, but, and kind of like somersaulting around the corner, like like he's Rambo, like yeah, 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 <laughs> like yeah. he's expecting yeah, to be exactly. shot at yeah. from every corner. Um, but then of course he at the very um, end there when when the doctor, oh, of course I'm fine. I'm always fine. Um, Mickey turns out to be sort of the insightful one at that moment. And Rose, you, you should show me the rest of this let's place go. now yeah. that let's, let's leave him to, um, you, you know, ruminate for, for a minute. So, um, yeah, yeah, but then, but then again, you also have Rose again as the, the, the companion as the ideal human qualities of compassion, you know, asking Renette, are you okay? And again, with the doctor, are you all right? You know? That maybe she should let him be in that moment, but also I like that. Oh yeah. Even, even when she is jealous, there's still that part of her that is caring about the other person, and that's really her priority. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I don't think that we're we're meant to believe that she's being like nosy or anything. It's it's certainly yeah. coming from a place of compassion, like you said. Um. So yeah, yeah. So Mickey, you know, he's there. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, well, we kind of got distracted. Maybe in the last couple minutes we can just talk about the setting and the spaceship and stuff. We got a little bit. Yeah, sure. What What do you have to that. say about that? Um, well, I mean, for the droids, I just wanted to highlight the scene, their first sort of scene, because I think, again, it's, going for what is it that scares kids, you know, and what, yeah. and really what is it that scares the kid and all of us, those really primal fears. So broke the broken clock, you know, which again is resonant with the time and everything. Um, but that kind of eerie ticking noise when the clock is broken, you know, that how can it be ticking? Um, as you said, yeah. the monster is under the bed, which is where you expect it to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I love the way the doctor tells Renette, to stay in the bed right in the middle. Don't put your hands or feet over the edge because I know I did that as a kid. I, think <laughs> I, I remember being a kid and watching like gremlins and getting really freaked oh, out yeah. about gremlins yeah. and then not, and then having this fear that not wanting my feet or my hands to hang over the bed because maybe they would bite you from underneath, you know, like I don't know if other kids have done that. I did that. Um, and then like the whole, even though they're like kind of trying to dress as like in the period, it's those clown smiles, like mm. those fixed, mm -hmm. you know, clownish faces and everything. Yeah, yeah, and, and well, and even the very sort of um, steampunkish look. Yeah, the uh, clockwork. Uh, yeah, and everything. The, the, yeah, the clockworks. You know, lots of gears and and yeah, which is very. You sort of think about it of that time. I mean, certainly more advanced than they would have had at that time, but you know, gears and, and complex mechanisms, you know, uh, being sort of a, a thing. Well, that and would... it's, and it's not that different because, um, 
I learned this in my research, there was a clockwork man at that time um, who oh. like traveled in the fairs and he was um, a chess player. He was called the Turk. Um, and okay. he would, you would wind him up and he would play chess with you like at the fair. And this was uh, kind of a famous little sideshow thing at the time. It's actually the basis for, I don't know if you read the book or saw that movie, Hugo. Um, hmm. No. The Adventures of Hugo Cabret. It's all about this wind up automaton. He draws, he doesn't play chess, but that that was a thing at the time and it's it's from this period. So it's actually not that unusual. Um, oh. And I like the doctors, again, same thing with the werewolf, that he thinks it's beautiful as much as it's scary and as much as it won't stop him yeah. taking it apart, um, he has to stop and admire, you know, the beauty of the space age clockwork. Um, so I like that too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is good. Um, I mean, and just like the setting too, that, um, they actually said the spaceship was designed to look like a clockwork key as well. The way okay. it's kind of long in the yeah, middle and yeah, has yeah. those pieces spinning around on the end. Yeah. Um, and I think I mentioned this to you before in a different conversation, but the way they did the sets, um, that were built on swivels so that they built the set side by side. So you had, um, you know, the drawing room or the fireplace room in one end and then the spaceship on the other. And they were just built in the same sound stage, like right next to each other. And then mm -hmm. the fireplace would just spin. So the actors could go from one to the other. Or like when Madame de Pompadour goes from the ballroom through the tapestry into the spaceship. That's yep. not like a cut. It's right. actual like they they just panned the camera from one side of the set to the other. Yeah. So I really like... And you get all those nice dualities of, like, past and future, light and dark, mm -hmm. comfort and luxury versus this, like, cold, empty metal spaceship and everything. Right. Um, I think it's visually very impressive. Yeah. Now it is. It's, they did a great job. Uh, I think that's everything I had. Did you have anything else about the setting or the droids or anything? No, um, just just that their their demise is they stop because they have no purpose. Yeah. You know that's that's interesting that they realize that they can't do what they were meant to do, and so they just sort of fall apart. Um, mm -hmm. And it yeah sort of becomes the last, the final, ultimate final end of the ship. The ship can't be completed, completely repaired. At that point. Um, so yeah. No, I didn't didn't have anything. Oh, I on one that. one last thing. Um again with that idea of like marrying the science fiction and the fairy tale aspects that uh, I the the kind of pseudoscientific explanations for what seems magical. So you get like spatiotemporal hyperlink. What's I didn't that? want to say that. No idea. Just made it up. Didn't want to say magic door. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, and it's very Narnia, this idea that like you go through a door into somewhere else where time moves differently. Like here it moves more swiftly sure. rather than more slowly. But it's the same basic idea. But the doctor doesn't want to say that it's not magic, it's science. So he calls it a spatiotemporal hyperlink. Right. Um, of course. 
And it's all hyperlinks. Like, he says that the fireplace has a loose connection. So he's, like, your computer repairman. Yeah, he's tinkering. Like, yeah. yeah. So yeah, If I just um, jiggle this wire a little bit at all. Exactly. So I kind of like to, as much as this one feels very fairy tale, they also go out of their way to make sure that there are at least the allusions to scientific plausibility and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway, yeah. good episode. One of my favorites. It is a good episode. I was really I, a solid, solid week here on both accounts. And uh, yes, definitely. I'm glad we're had. A, I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about them both. And so um, I think that probably wraps it up then. And we will come back next week with, with a couple other hopefully pretty decent episodes. I, I mm-hmm. can't remember what we're going to be looking at, but hopefully it will be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you all for listening. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Good night.